0: The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today, we talk with Anya Kamenetz, NPR education correspondent and a host on NPR's Life Kit. Anya joined NPR in 2014 as part of a new initiative to coordinate on-air and online coverage of learning. A contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and Slate, Anya is the author of several books, including The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. Anya talks with us about technology's effect on social-emotional learning, how her research and reporting influences her own parenting style, and common challenges for young families. Here are your hosts, Mia and Andrea.
1: Hi, Mia. How are you? (laughs) Good to see you remotely today. I know. I
2: I, I miss you. (laughs) We're not in in the same room.
1: I know. I can't kick you under the table.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What's good for me about that is that I can actually hear you better. (laughs)
1: When you're right not right. right next to you, because we
2: have to wear headphones and I'm I'm hard of yeah. hearing on one side. So I always have to have half my headphones off to hear you in the room, but I do miss your presence.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'll be back <laughs> next week.
2: <laughs> you know, you've had a, a couple of fangirl moments in our podcast history, and I I have. I have to say I'm this is mine because I am so excited to talk to Anya Kamenets, who is an NPR education correspondent but also the co-host of a podcast that I love to listen to, Life Kit Parenting, which is a NPR and Sesame Workshop, work on that. And as a parent of young kids, I've found it to be incredibly helpful. I felt like Life Kit is a nice way to get that. They're pretty short and you get these like great tips. So I'm really excited to talk to her. And I actually, recently, they had an episode on anxiety, which I found really useful for some things that we're sort of thinking about in our home and and some of the questions and fears that my kids have come up with. There were some validating pieces. I think one of the really challenging things as a parent is determining how much to push your kids when they're experiencing fear around something. Uh Uh-huh that and they talked a lot about that. That was kind of helpful because I always it's if I don't do it, I feel like I'm robbing them of an opportunity or maybe just not as skillful as I as I should be in moving them forward and helping them progress around their emotions. But if I force it, then I feel like maybe I'm subjecting them to some kind of trauma. <laughs> right. So so they talked about that line. I thought that was helpful.
1: And you said that her podcast is produced in conjunction with Sesame Workshop. Mm -hmm. And they also have a great series on how to talk to kids about death. And I think Mm -hmm. it is part of their military families initiative, which is something that sometimes families have to deal with.
2: And I think it's also pretty exciting because you in particular here at Committee for Children did a lot of work with Sesame Workshop in developing their approach to self-regulation and that calming down pieces. And this podcast references the belly breathing and and the pieces that you specifically (laughs) helped develop with Sesame Workshop. So there's a, a good connection there.
1: Oh, that's so great. It's so gratifying to see that that language that is used in the Second Step programs is reflected also in the Sesame episodes and in the songs. And what we love to see happen is for those strategies and techniques to be used not only in school, but in the homes. And it's hard for families to find out about it. Only through their kids in school, right? And so the more we reinforce it, the better. But you were saying that you saw something about the belly breathing, which is so great that they've incorporated into so many aspects of their media.
2: That seems to be a concept that's really taken hold broadly. Any interactions I'm having with schools, even in my personal life, they've really taken that to heart, at least that aspect of it. Yeah. And I I think we should do some belly breathing before we go into this, because I don't know about you, but I feel really (laughs) intimidated about interviewing people whose job it is to interview people, (laughs) because we are not... I mean, you have a media background, but I am not a, a trained professional. Uh, spoiler alert, listeners. <laughs> this is like my first rodeo. And so I feel like talking to Anya is somewhat intimidating, but she seems lovely. I'm sure she will make it easy on us.
1: I know she will. And maybe we can ask her for some tips.
2: Yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> Should we do some of the, the belly breathing <laughs> to kind yeah. of get through it? Okay,
1: yeah. Ready? Okay, I'm ready. Is your hand on your belly, Andrea? It is. All right. All right. Your air going all the way down to the bottom of your lungs. And out through your mouth. Slowly. One more time. Deep in through your nose. Slowly exhaling out your mouth. All right.
2: How you feeling? Oh. So good. <laughs> Pretty good, you know. Sometimes, actually, I start meetings that way. Here, I just kind of come in. Everybody's frantic. And I say, "Let's just, <laughs> let's just stop and take it." And actually, I do that at yeah. dinner sometimes too. I was like, yeah. "Let's just all."
1: It's like a, such yeah. a good reset. Well, my watch reminds me now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. All right. As you know, and some of the listeners who've heard us talk about our kids before know that my son is grown. And so it's been a really interesting journey for me to go through that experience of raising a child and then circle back around and be working on programs and projects that are for young parents and new parents and seeing all of that, again, from a different perspective of having been through it and just remembering like how hard it is, how stressful it is, how focused you get on your kids. And how difficult it is to kind of take a step back and do some briefing or, yeah. you know, to kind of unwind from it. And
2: yeah, sometimes I wonder if I will ever be able to talk about anything else again. I feel like I just right? always talk about my children. And I know, <laughs> I bet it's a, a real pain for people
1: who, oh my gosh, like you said, it's hard to talk about anything else. You know, you go to parties and I remember my husband used to say, okay, can you just not talk about <laughs> bullying tonight? <laughs> How about we have Uh one party where you don't have to talk about bullying? But I'm like, but people ask me people people want to know people have concerns so that is true
2: i mean once people know where you work <laughs> that's really yeah. the conversation i think for me too oh yeah i think also we have a you know a background here in sexual abuse prevention and and i find a really challenging piece is that so many people have experienced trauma of that nature and as soon as they hear where i work and hear some of the background there's there's always the great social emotional learning but when they dig in a little more I get a lot of disclosures of things that have affected them or their families, and I absolutely support that and want to be supportive of that. But it is like bullying. When you're talking about it at a party, right? it can be <laughs> rough. Silas, our, our older child, he, he's like a deep questioner. Like, I can't get away from uncomfortable questions with this kid. It's, <laughs> right. And it's great. I mean, they're all great questions. It's just he's on a new thing every few weeks where he just needs to fully understand it and a lot of them are very challenging concepts or they're very abstract and i love that he's he wants to know but often they do lead him into this more anxious space a recent one has been really around homelessness and food security i sort of think these are anxiety based because i feel like the progression is he starts first trying to understand the concept and then he starts applying it to himself so his most recent round is about what if I lose my job? Right. And I you know, I say, We have a plan, you don't need to he's like, What if we don't have enough food? We have a plan, you don't need to worry about those things, we are taking care of it. And now and last night he said, I want to see the plan. <laughs> he wants to see my <laughs> he wants to see my plan for if we Do are. Do you have are, a spreadsheet for No, Andrea. I think I'll have to <laughs> develop one. Hi, Anya, this is Andrea. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Pretty well, thanks. Hi, Anya. It's Mia. It's so great to meet you. I have to say, so Mia has had a couple of fangirl moments in the past in, <laughs> her, um, in our podcast history. And this is really one for me because I listen to Life Kit Parenting. Great. And I find it so incredibly helpful. So first, I just want to say thank you <laughs> for the work that you're doing there.
3: Thank you for listening.
2: Um, And I'm so happy that you're spending – you have such a broad area of focus in, in various parts of education and parenting and you're a novelist. And so that you spend your time there means a lot to me because it's very helpful in my personal life. So thank you. So we thought we'd just kind of start out by giving folks some context for your background, and you are an NPR education correspondent, among many other things. How did you really come to the field of education and exploring that as kind of your main focus?
3: By an unusual stepwise process. Unusual, I say, because I started from the perspective of students. My first book was all about the millennial generation and about student loan debt as a core economic issue for that generation and so through that lens I really came to look at education on the basis of the experience that it was providing to students and I came to see how unusual that was because understandably so so many of the people who are making decisions about education are either educators or there's some other kind of stakeholder or researcher but it's really rare that you are kind of zeroing in on the perspective of the learner and so I came to kind of see that as my, banner to wave even as I kind of aged out of the youth demographic myself. But thinking about how education serves or does not serve the learner is really something that I brought with me all along and and certainly into my now and my work in early childhood.
1: So Anya, what was really your first biggest success, your kind of like breakout piece that you would consider?
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, when I was 24, I published a cover story in The Village Voice about young people and how they were not being addressed in the then democratic primary race and sort of looking at young people as a class that they had these issues that they were not going to do as well as their parents did and that was what all the that's what the early indicators were in 2004 that's certainly been proven out today so looking at student loan debt but also changes in the job market At the time, increases in credit card debt and the marketing of credit cards to college students. Mm -hmm. And then, coupled with all this, this very toxic anti youth rhetoric around the millennials don't want to grow up and they're infantilized and they, you know, they're constitutionally incapable of, of taking charge of their own lives. You know, this was really a lie because what was actually happening was that people were moving back in with their parents because for the first time they had, you know, five figures of student loan debt when they graduated college, if they graduated college. And the job market had changed and the minimum wage had not increased. So that made a splash. I got a, a book deal very quickly from that and was kind of out there very young trying to make a case for myself and implicitly people like me that we should be taken seriously. So that was something I weathered a lot of <laughs> criticism for, and I think it made me a better advocate and a more careful journalist going forward.
2: And that book was called Generation Debt, correct?
3: Right. As you kind of
2: move forward in your career and explored other pieces, you kept a, a through line of education and some common themes around that. What has kept you engaged and fascinated in this topic?
3: I would say the tension between the needs of society that we're educating people for possibly the desires of the marketplace and then individual students desire to come to know themselves and to understand what is a good life and what do I want out of life. And, you know, there's just no end to the number of things that we're kind of asking teachers and classrooms to be aware of. And so even though it's always a delicate process, it's something that continues to fascinate me. Definitely through line in my work. I love research. I love knowledge production. Mm-hmm. I love hearing what researchers are coming up with to try to answer questions like these.
1: And then in your journey through learning about the classroom, about education, where is that intersection that you've come across social and emotional learning? As you know, at at Committee for Children, that is the foundation of the work that we're doing. And I'm curious as to, is it something that you encountered right away? Is it something that sort of took you a while to dig in and find out more about?
3: It's something that is not foregrounded in the higher ed world, I would say and something you hear mm-hmm. a lot more about in the earlier years. I think that's a mistake. I think that people never stop being whole humans with emotions and, and developmental needs, certainly throughout the the education life cycle. But I think – so it's something that I, I, I started to learn more about. And I also came to it through my increasing awareness of equity issues and what race and class do and have always done to the educational context. And so – understanding how to address the needs that come from a very unequal society and how people bring them into the classroom, I think requires a lot of social and emotional insight. So I was brought into concern and awareness as I started to focus on younger students. And then I would add too that my work in technology and innovation requires a better understanding of human nature as we start to think about how technology might support or hinder various goals.
2: I'd love to hear more about that. That's actually something that's been on my mind since I learned we would get the opportunity to talk to you. So I have not yet read The Art of Screen Time, but I have it. And we've been talking in our family about screen time and issues around that. We also have a lot of conversations with schools and here at Committee for Children about education technology and how that supports student learning in in the area of social emotional skill building. What are your thoughts about, or maybe you have examples about how you've seen technology used well in that context, or some current concerns around the use of technology and its effect on social emotional learning? Have you done any thinking about that?
3: A huge amount. And it's very, very complicated and hard to answer in a pithy way. I think the good applications in my books, in chapter six, screens at school, I kind of cover the waterfront as far as what I've seen, the good, the bad, and the ugly around screens in learning contexts. And I guess what I would say is that in order to have a great educational experience using technology. You need either a very inspired teacher who's really in love with the technology themselves and just fired up about helping kids explore it themselves, or you need a very well-prepared learner who has the self-confidence and the self-efficacy to go on a discovery journey themselves. And then you can have all kinds of wonderful outcomes where people are doing deep dives on their interests and connecting with communities and getting very creative using technology and the web. And in the absence of those two conditions, you get something that really is worse than if you didn't have technology. So you get technology used in a substitutive way, not to enhance learning, but really to Cut the teacher a break. Um, it's often given, you know, thought of as something that is taking, you know, taking up the time while you know allowing the teacher perhaps to work one on one with this more with a smaller group of students while everyone else is plugged in. But it really isn't enhancing learning. And I think we have good evidence now that the humdrum everyday application of computers in the classroom is not enhancing learning. It's not not in any measurable way. And the best you can say about it is that it is making schools look more like the modern workplace, including the fact that they are schools with screens, just like offices with screens are plagued with distraction issues and technical issues and other kinds of impediments to getting students on task.
1: Anya, could you share an example, and it could be from your book, of a classroom or school that's doing it really well, that what they're doing is really enhancing learning. Kids are engaged. You see the benefits both academic and social and emotional.
3: Sure, I did a story about Minecraft in the classroom and oh, yeah, kind of a community of teachers that had become, you know, a lot of them were Minecraft enthusiasts themselves and they had built classroom-based servers and they were enabling students to do everything from, you know, test physics ideas to create a Historical diorama within the game and sort of create examples of tools that would be used by certain prehistoric peoples in a specific place. And they sort of had the students shape the geography of the Minecraft world into a map and what we know about what this region looked like at that time. And so that kind of world building exercise is incredible and it's something that we really can only do in that way in a game. And I think the other dimension to it as well that's easily overlooked is that. Even when teachers aren't using technology in the classroom, they can be using technology outside the classroom and building personal learning networks of their own to share ideas and amazing innovations are spreading. I mean, an example that I would use with the last two years at NPR, we've done the most viral classroom moments of the year. And a lot of them are just great examples of teachers bringing their students to the world. And one of them was their social and emotional learning idea, which has spread around partly because of Pinterest and Instagram, which is a check-in poster mm-hmm. at the door, right? Where, where students kind yeah. of, in this particular one, it was this a student, one student was appointed, a kindergarten student to greet every other member of the class as they came through the door. And the students, the kindergartners were choosing whether they wanted a hug or a handshake or a high five. And so you just had this mm-hmm. video of this adorable little boy hugging most of his classmates. <laughs> but that's an important social emotional learning idea. So it was, you know, and and yeah. through that, the medium, I think, of Twitter was shared with, you know, people in 100 countries. Very cool. And I love that you use the example
1: of Minecraft. I don't know if you know, but we in our Innovation Lab at Committee for Children have for the past couple of years been working on a, a Minecraft project with Katie Salen from UC Irvine and her team where they've created adventure games where kids are learning conflict resolution skills in the context of just playing you know and building and exploring the thing that's so cool is you know to see the rigorous you know research outcomes of programs like that
3: yep absolutely
2: another connection that i was thinking about a lot before this time we would have together is i so i was listening to life kit in sort of the self-regulation episode and with with cookie monster and the belly breathing and actually i'm not sure if you're aware of this but mia herself is the person who consulted with sesame workshop to create that the belly breathing approach Oh
3: really yeah yeah my goodness that's yes. like, oh, it's
2: a small world. And it's yeah. so great that that is out there at such a large scale now.
1: Yeah. I mean, let me say that they just have brought their brilliance to, which is really great. They brought their brilliance to so many of the concepts that are in the school curriculum, which the evidence based programs, which are really great. They're so appropriate for school. And to have it then extended into children's media where kids can see it at home and have those concepts reinforced and families can learn about them is really exciting.
3: That's awesome! I'm happy to have been a small part of it. I think it's such important work, and we talk about the belly breathing in every episode now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, so, so important. There's like no situation that it's not good for.
2: And how did you come to NPR? What was your your pathway there? Were you a NPR fan in general? I know some people they grew up with NPR and they oh absolutely they have a, oh yeah.
3: I completely grew up with NPR very very much so. And I was thrilled when they approached me. I think that it was a unique opportunity because they had. Received received some, you know, foundation funding to expand their coverage in the areas of education and international health and development. You can guess where that money might have come from. They decided to use it to assemble a multimedia team that would investigate kind of how we could how NPR as a whole could get better at covering the news both digital and audio based. And so hmm. I was able to be hired on even though I didn't have an audio background and was trained up in in radio techniques and production and all of that. So it's been a really great
2: time. Before you joined us, we were talking about how intimidating it is to interview people whose job is reporting and creating audio content. So we appreciate you making it easy on us and any tips that you have along the way because we are... (laughs) You know, this is our first rodeo. That's
3: great. You're doing great so far. I'll let you know.
2: <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Speaking of NPR and Life Kit, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that podcast.
3: Yeah, Life Kit was really born out of the responses that both Corey and I had gotten online to our web stories that touched on various aspects of research and how they could become actionable. And informative for parents, and we really felt like there was a need in the realm of audio for parents to get evidence-based information, but that was delivered to them in a way that was easy for uh, and palatable for a parent who has a limited amount of time, like we all do. So that's really the the impetus for it. And I recall it was work that I'd done, you know, reporting on, for example, work by Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Roberta Golenkoff, as well as Jess Leahy, who's a journalist I really admire. We did The Gift of Failure and other work, and we saw how the audience connected with that, and we really wanted to bring a version of that online. And simultaneously, both of us have been having conversations with Sesame about you know their work and really learning how much research had gone into all the work that they do. And we thought it would be really interesting to try, and they also did, luckily, mm-hmm. a little bit of, of collaboration on that front. And we have really branched out beyond that because they have a very clear mandate for what they do and don't do. And I think there's a lot of topics and areas that like sex, which we've just come out with, the birds and the bees. That's not something that Sesame's ever really taken on. Yeah, it's been it's been a great ride. We've got a big year ahead of us. We've got a lot of new episodes coming out looking at early, early childhood, babyhood, as well as a range of more social emotional ideas and learning based ideas. So we're really excited.
2: As I said, I'm a listener, and I think, you know, there were some, here at Committee for Children, we actually started in sexual abuse prevention. So some of the, the pieces of the most recent episode, The Birds and the Bees, I think was the title of the episode, around consent and sort of using real terms for body parts to so that kids can talk to their doctors about it, also so that they can report. That's sort of a protective factor for giving them what they need to – the language to report if someone is breaking a touching rule, as we would say. And so – and that connection of social-emotional learning in the area of consent I thought was really great and really resonated with some of the work that we've done.
3: Thank you very much. Yeah, we're working on the second part right now um, for older children, and it certainly is a bit of a minefield, but it's feel like it's good prep yes. for me because my daughter's eight. <laughs> so
2: you have an, uh, an eight-year-old?
3: An eight-year-old and a three-year-old, as you heard about And a three-year-old. The That's right. Mm-hmm. Talked by a three-year-old. Yeah.
2: Has your parenting changed? Are there things that you're trying to apply in your own parenting? Sometimes it can be like, you know too much. (laughs) Um, So I'm curious about the effect on your own family of the work that you do.
3: I've been really surprised, Andrea, at how revelatory this research has been because I already wrote a parenting book. I mean, it's a screen parenting book, but still, before I started working on LifeKit and nevertheless, with every episode that we've done, I've had that aha moment about things that, you know, I wish that I had done differently or luckily, you know, things that I resolved to do better in the future. I mean, I I owned myself on the podcast and also on Morning Edition when I said that, you know, I hadn't been teaching my younger daughter the, the real true names for her body parts and she... Demonstrated that um, on tape, yeah. saying you know, using our family code word instead of her real the real right. word. And so, yeah, I mean, there's always more to learn. And I think even just the idea of being aware of how I process my own emotions and make that legible to my children, the way that I is important to talk to them when I mess up or when I'm confused or when I wish I'd done something differently, and sort of model that for them because I do see how hard it can be to kind of admit that you were wrong and say you're sorry. Our kids need to hear that a lot.
1: You know, Anya and being on the other side of it, it's, it's a journey when you have kids and you have some expertise. And then what happens when your kids get older is that they know you have it. And they kind of turn it around on you. <laughs> yes. So, like when your kids are teenagers. I just want you to brace yourself for some <laughs> of the responses that you're that you're gonna be getting. But it really does all turn out well on the other side. And it's not easy along the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. think about the other end, okay. <laughs> Will do. I promise to try
2: to
3: take a long term view for sure. Yeah. yeah.
2: Something that you've been reporting your recent reporting has focused on. And then also there's I think a fairly recent episode of life kit is really anxiety and the anxiety, increased anxiety in children. Can you tell us a little bit about the changes that you've sort of reported on going on in kids' brains and what that means for the next generation?
3: Sure. I mean, I think with a lot of these situations, it can be difficult to tease out how much of it is the fact that we have just more vocabulary for these conditions versus actual increases. And I think, although I think there's reason to believe that you know, in a society that's as unequal as ours is where violence is so often depicted, including happening to children, where we have, we're have we facing these threats from climate change and from kind of unstable leadership, that there is more anxiety ambiently and children are bound to pick up on it. I think the most important things I learned from that investigation in talking is that obviously anxiety is very treatable as long as you have the vocabulary to, under, to talk about it and the tools to recognize it. I think with parents, it's something that can be strangely hidden because we see a kid who might be being resistant or acting angry or just shut down, withdrawn, and we don't know that anxiety is at the, at the core of that. And a lot of times as parents, you feel like your job is just to put your head down and get through the day and, and push them to leave for school on time or push them to go to the, the party where you know that can really backfire if you're not being sensitive to what that really is. The
2: episode around anxiety really resonated with me. I actually came to life kit Because my son was asking questions about death. Oh, wow. And I found that episode really useful in my conversations with him. So I remained a listener after that point. But my son, who's my older child, he is a very deep questioner. And I was like, this is great that he's asking all these really deep questions. Like he fully wants to understand things. And I thought, you know, he's just really smart. And then it became apparent that the questions he was asking were really about things that he was worried about. He needed the assurance that he fully understood them or that he could kind of somehow control or manage them. He's a super calm kid. Like I didn't, there weren't a lot of outward signs of that. Like once we did a whole month of questions on tornadoes, which is something that's pointed out specifically in that episode of Life Kit, the tornado, if they're asking about tornadoes, you know, and it came, it became apparent at the end of that month that he was worried about if our house would be strong enough to withstand a tornado if a tornado hit. And so I was like in this, great, he wants to know how things work, he's so smart, <laughs> space. And, and when I looked, did some more research online, I saw, oh, that can be really anxiety related. And then your co-host talked about how he really hid that as a kid, wherever he could. And I just thought that was a really helpful note for parents, that it doesn't always show up in the ways that you expect. And it doesn't always show up as a kind of very clear outward sign of panic, but I think it'll help a lot of parents to hear that.
3: Thank you. You know, I mean, some of the it's really interesting because every time we go into an episode, we're sort of going through all the different points of view that we that we might need to address, and it's it can be extremely difficult at times because so trying to take in all the different possibilities and be sensitive to them all, um, I think is something that we we worry a lot over. So it's, it's good to hear that it was helpful in your situation. Okay.
2: Thanks for indulging my fangirl moments. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: no, no. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful to hear because, you know, we don't get as much feedback as we'd like to. It's great to hear how people are responding. So thank you. I'll definitely pass it along to Corey as well. That was obviously his baby that episode.
1: So Anya, I'm sure that as people in your, you know, social circles find out, about what your job is you know that that people probably solicit advice from you <laughs> <laughs> besides screen time this is something that i find in particular that a lot of young parents are asking me about is screen time what are some of the other issues that you're finding that are causing a lot of anxiety for young families
3: it's a really interesting question certainly with the younger kids it's it would be sleep i think there's a lot mm-hmm. of issues around and sleep and separation, and I think what's what's buried in that sometimes is also like for working parents, maybe that's the time that they have together is bedtime at the end of the day. And so they're wondering how to calibrate between their child's needs and their own needs. Certainly behavior. I mean just you know, writ large. And I've done some events with Catherine Lewis, who did the good news about bad behavior. And we're not we don't see perfectly eye to eye on these issues, I think, but there's a lot of parents I know who really struggle to find an approach to their kids behavior that feels authentic to them and allows for what we have all become a much more aware of kind of understanding of what motivates kids when they're acting out and what's their unique personality and how much do we as a community accommodate that versus norms of behavior that we have to all respect and I think that parents parents can and do differ on that reasonably and so that leads to some conflict sometimes I think a lot of parents in my community are concerned about climate change. That's why I did this episode about it. And it's more abstract, Mm -hmm. but it's also the question about how much do we let our kids know about the big, cruel world out there versus how much do we try to to shield them, which really is a universal.
2: And you've written on standardized testing and some things like that. And I at least hear a lot of anxiety about that. (laughs) Yes. Is there a shift happening there? Will it change? What is your prediction around standardized testing moving forward?
3: I do see a welcome de emphasis on standardized test scores as the be all and end all of judging schools and judging teachers, which I think is good because it leads to less pressure on students. But at the same time, a rising trend seems to be the introduction of more school choice schemes. And oftentimes that's done for very good reasons. They want to meet and accommodate the needs of different kinds of parents. And also school choice can be a way of giving parents the option to not go to a school that's not doing that well. And school choice can sometimes make schools more integrated, which is a worthy kind of civic goal. At the same time, in a city like New York where I live, choice programs are gauntlets of testing and sorting and stress. And it happens, you know, it's a huge process that happens in middle school and happens again in high school. And it just pressures parents and children so much, and the test, which we all agree is flawed and limited as an arbiter of people's real gifts, somehow has become the barometer of you know what your fate is going to be as far as what school you get to go to, and that just seems really illogical to me. I don't see how those two things can be true at the same time. So yeah, I think that that's a real that's a real issue because we have such inequities in our school system that it can feel like life or death whether you get into your first or second choice school and even though that's probably not right. the case the parents anxiety is very palpable and the children feel it too
1: and not just in middle school and high school right like really preschool kindergarten it starts very early
3: that's right it starts in preschool and and it goes through college so there's mm-hmm. no there's very little let up and it's you know it's so completely arbitrary it's really not the best indicator of of what a person's potential is and It's also not fair to the schools, you know, to have to go through this process and rather than concentrate on what they'd like to provide to students, they have to prove themselves on test scores in order to be judged by other students, other stakeholders, other people in the community.
1: So, Anya, what's next for you? What are you interested in reporting on next?
3: Gosh, I mean, I'm working on a full slate of things right now. I've got, you know, we have a whole, like I said, a whole schedule of LifeKid episodes in the works. We're certainly going to be looking at early childhood issues like potty training, things like eating, things like learning disabilities and ADHD. And then outside of that, I've got a couple of stories about – I've been doing, since Parkland, kind of a an intermittent series on – what really works to reduce violence in school and reduce peer aggression and bullying. So I've been working on that. I've got some more social entrepreneurship stories. Some are education-based and some are less education-based. And I'm really focusing Mm. on climate in 2020. I think that that's the number one issue for our children's future. And connecting with parents as a group as we start to work through what it's gonna mean for us to create a livable planet for our kids is something I really want to be a part of. Well that's that seems like a full docket (laughs) for for things to address. One of
2: the things that I you know I've been sort of curious about as we talk to people who are journalists or, or working in the media is climate around journalism and reporting and the growing need for media literacy for kids and sort of understanding how to sort of look at sources and make judgments of what you're consuming online. you know, What are your thoughts on that? How are you feeling as someone who's working in journalism?
3: I'm proud to say that we're involved in this on a lot of different levels. I mean, first of all, we just re- re-upped our last piece on what to say to kids when the news is scary and talked about how we need to give kids the facts and make news legible to them. I also did a piece that touched on the use of TikTok by teenagers to create their own commentary. And I think it's really it's great when teachers and even parents can encourage young people to tell their own stories as a means of participating in media production and understanding, therefore, a little bit more about how it's made and why it's made. Creating their own interpretations of, of stories and ideas, I think, is a really useful skill. And then on top of that, you know, my NPR team is producing our second year of the Student Podcast Challenge, which is a national competition that teachers and students, we got thousands of entries last year. And again, this is an example of students making the media. And then we've enhanced kind of the guidance that we're offering on the NPR side so that we can help students understand through participation a little bit more about you know, what makes a good story, how to do your research, how to do reporting, what to put in, what to leave out. And we have a student podcast challenge podcast that we put out. Yeah, I think we're, we're trying to tackle this in all ways, both as reporters, but also sort of as participants.
2: Yeah. The name of the podcast is Grow Kinder. And we talk usually to our guests about how kindness shows up in their work or doesn't, and <laughs> what is their perspective on kindness? So if you could share with us, how do you think about kindness in the work
3: that you do? Oh, that's such a great question. As I think about kindness in the work that I do, I, th- I find it embodied in the recognition of everyone's humanity and everyone's equal claim to the human experience. And so I think about kindness in terms of fairness I think about it in terms of listening carefully to people, both what they say and what they don't say. I think about it increasingly in terms of representation, how we represent America and the world, specifically through you know lifting up the voices of people that have been marginalized for many reasons and recognizing different sources of expertise. And I think one of the most wonderful things I've learned through my engagement with your community and people that study social and emotional learning is that you can get kinder if you try. I've sort of created, I've, I've developed a growth mindset around kindness for myself personally and for my family that by becoming aware of emotions and how they work and people and their vulnerabilities, it can really open up your heart and you can become better. I can become a better friend, a better family member and a better citizen and a better employee and everywhere you go, you can you know, become kinder.
1: Anya Kamenetz, what a lovely note to leave us on today. If our listeners want to know more about you, where's the best place that they could find out more about you and your work?
3: I guess I would direct them to my website, anyakamenetz.net. I've got there a free newsletter. I've got my Twitter feed and I've got all my books and different updates. Wonderful.
2: Well, thank you again for joining us and for the work that you're doing in supporting teachers and information that is helpful for parents. And we wish you all the best in your next series of work.
3: Thank you so much for the feedback and the information. I really appreciate the work that you do.
1: Thank you. How do you think we we did, Mia? Were we up to snuff? I hope so. It was <laughs> really interesting talking to Anya, and I mean, I could have talked to her for another half hour easily. Yeah. You know, I'd love to follow up with her some more on some of the social entrepreneurs that she has worked with. You know, because of course, in our innovation lab at Committee for Children, we're always looking to see who's working in the space, who's doing something, mm-hmm. you know, very creative and different and new. And in particular, I appreciated her perspective about youth voice and the projects coming from the youth themselves. And those are initiatives that we're always, always interested in as well.
2: Yeah. I hope that I, uh, I didn't dominate too much with the, here's your effect on my life. <laughs>
1: <point>. <laughs> no, I, think, I think that that's great. I'm, I'm sure she's happy to know that she's made an impression on you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Anya Kamenitz, NPR education correspondent and a host on NPR's Life Kit. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.